handling. Some tough questions, and today's going to be tough too, because the answer to the question is really pretty obvious. But what we do with the answer makes all the difference in the world. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read all of these books to you, and then we're going to go home. Okay? <laughs> Today's question is, is the Bible the only truth? And it's really tempting with this question to look out at you today and say, hey, the seniors are graduating, and congratulations to all of you from me as well. So let's do this the easy way. Is the Bible the only truth? Yes, we're done. Go home. But we're not going to do that because that question begs a couple other questions that are really, really important for us to understand. One of which is, which truth is that of the Bible? And how do we find that truth? How do we discern the truth that we want to share and that we proclaim as the only truth? Because the Bible has lots of words in it written in lots of different times. And sometimes getting to what is the truth that must be shared can be a hard thing, especially if we make decisions quickly. So to begin today, I'd like to take um, a look at one verse from Hebrews. And I'm going to read it to you from two different versions of the Bible. This is um, my parallel Bible where there's a New International Version in one column and right next to it is the Message Translation. And frankly, I never would have learned to read the Bible if I didn't have this kind of book because there were times when the New International Version was thoroughly unreachable. I didn't understand it. And in those moments, I wondered about this little Bible that my grandma gave me in the second grade. It was one of those Bibles you get when you memorize all the verses that you're supposed to memorize in Sunday school. And it's a revised standard version of the Bible. It's nothing like the kids' versions of the Bible that we give out today. It's nothing like this Bible that we hand out at the Jubilee that's written at the third grade level. And I'm really glad that through the years, Bibles have been developed with an eye on different audiences, with an understanding that sometimes different words can convey the same meaning. And that's what our verse does for us today. I'm reading from Hebrews uh, chapter 4, uh, just one verse, verse 12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. But if we go to the message and we read the very same verse, it doesn't sound the same. It says, and it's here somewhere, there it is. God means what he says. What he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. And I have to tell you, as someone in my early days reading the Bible, I understand cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, better than cutting joints and marrow, which sounds very biological to me. And so we have to recognize that in all these different versions of these books, whether we're dealing with 
a layman's Bible that has four different translations in one Bible, it's parallel times two. Whether we're dealing with the decorative Bible that sits on the kitchen, or not the kitchen table, the living room table, but that's written in the King James Version with all the F's, loveth and doeth and giveth and runneth and walketh, that makes it really hard to understand. There's a a certain essence to all of these different versions of the Bible and it's important for us to grasp them but it's hard to do that because sometimes some of us read the Bible and say every single word is literally true the Bible was inspired by God God leaned to someone's ear and dictated word for word what was written and there's people who read the Bible that way and that's fine and then there's people who say well let's talk about Jonah for example Jonah's a prophet. God has a mission for him to go to a people that he, he, Jonah, does not like at all to undertake actions that will save those people if they repent and turn to God. And Jonah wants no part of it. So he runs away from God and he's in the ocean and he gets swallowed by a big fish and he stays in the big fish's belly for three days and after he comes to his senses and realizes that he needs to obey God even though he's pretty petulant about it the fish spits him out on the shore and Jonah sort of begrudgingly goes off and does the work that God wanted him to do so the question we have and I'm not going to answer it and I'm not even going to tell you what I think the answer is Was there really a prophet who got swallowed by a big fish and was under the ocean and survived for three days because God can do all things, we know this, God can perform miracles? Or was that story a metaphor to teach us a lesson that's way more important than the science behind whether someone can survive in the belly of a fish for three days? And that truth in that story is that our great God can save whomever he pleases, whether we like it or not, whether we think those people are worthy of being saved, and that sometimes, to point out to us the error of our own ways, God might even use us to share the love of Christ with people who we don't like at all. Now, what do you want to have a discussion about if we're going to talk about the Bible? Whether a guy could really get swallowed by a fish hole and live for three days, or whether as human beings we have a tendency to only want God to do good things for the people who we want him to do good things for. I would suggest to you the message of this story is more important than a debate about the literal truth of a guy in the belly of a fish. But the Bible also is filled with contradictions. And it's not just over little details. It's over some really big things. And for that, we're going to take a look at the biggest story in the Bible. Easter morning with the empty tomb. And we're going to look at how Matthew, Luke, and John tell that story. And then I'm going to ask you a question. But if we turn to Matthew chapter 28, this is the gist of the Easter morning story. Women meet one angel at a tomb. There's an earthquake. The angel tells the women to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. The women saw and spoke to Jesus. There was no upper room encounter. 
Jesus appears to the disciples in Galilee. End of story. He's raised to heaven. Luke chapter 24. Two angels told the women that Jesus had risen. The women went to tell the 11 remaining disciples with Judas being gone, but they didn't believe it. Peter went to the tomb alone and found it empty and kind of walked away scratching his head, not sure what to think. Jesus then appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He then appeared to disciples in a room in Jerusalem where he ate with them. Then Jesus led them to an area of Bethany where he blessed them and ascended to heaven. Then we go to John's gospel and John says, Mary Magdalene, one woman, went to the tomb and found it empty. She went back and told the disciples. Peter and John ran to the tomb and found it empty. Then Mary Magdalene, while she was crying, saw two angels. And then Jesus appeared to her, but she thought he was a gardener. Then he spoke to her again, and she realized who it was. Then she told the disciples. Then Jesus appeared in the upper room with the disciples, but Thomas wasn't with them, so he showed up again a week later so that doubting Thomas could stop doubting. Let me ask you a question. Those three versions of that morning all differ. Does that make any one of those a lie? Of course not. Of course not. What do we need to remember about that morning? The tomb was empty. What do we need to remember about that morning? Jesus appeared to many witnesses, as Pastor Bob spoke about on Easter. It's irrefutable. There were too many witnesses. He met with the disciples. They touched his hands. They touched his feet. And in the end, before he left them and ascended into heaven, he charged them with the awesome responsibility that we carry on today to bring the good news of this book to the whole world. But if we want to argue with people about the absolute accuracy of every word of the Bible, the Bible works a little bit against us. So how do you explain those differences? Well, the book was written by people who were excited that day. It was a big deal. They watched him die on a cross and all of a sudden he was back. And the story got passed by word of mouth first. And then eventually it got memorialized in writings. And then translators and scribes rewrote it and rewrote it. And along the way some words changed. But at the end of the day, what didn't change? The tomb was empty. Christ had risen, and our salvation was secured. And that is the good news that we're supposed to share from this book. You know, Jesus used parables. Every word he spoke wasn't meant literally. He even told the people sometimes that he was speaking in parables, and he explained why. The truth of this book, of these books, of all these books, with all the different words they use, and all the different translations, and the ones that are written in German and French and Italian and all the other languages out there, the truth of these books is in what it teaches us about our salvation. What it teaches us about the story from beginning to end, the overarching story of how our great God pursued reconciliation with humanity because we were too knuckle-headed to pursue it with God. 
the story is that that God of the Old Testament, you know, the one we sometimes think is angry and vengeful and fear the Lord and all of that, isn't the same God in the New Testament. We sometimes make that mistake, but that's not so. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the Father, Son, and Spirit who we come to know intimately in the New Testament because reconciliation with us was so important to God that he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and by his incarnation and his ministry and his death and his resurrection we could finally see in its fullest revelation God's love for us. And that's the message that we have to share. That's the message that matters. When Paul was trying to teach Timothy what Timothy would need to know to be an apostle and a disciple and a minister of the word, this is what he said to him. This is from 2 Timothy 3. There is nothing like the written word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way through the word we are put together and shaped up for the task God has for us. And that is the truth that we need to share. So we can look at the question, is the Bible the only truth? And we can say, yes, but only is a very powerful word, and it is a word that has the power to repel, to exclude, and to sound very arrogant. And if we're going to say that the Bible is the only truth, it's helpful if we know just a little bit about the truths that some other faiths believe, even if for us they don't, they don't represent the truth that we believe. For example, our Islamic brothers and sisters believe that there's one God, that's Allah, and they have to do things. They worship Allah only. They have mandatory prayers they're supposed to pray every day. They give to the poor. Sounds kind of similar to some other things we hear. They make a pilgrimage to the Hajj, and they have to observe the fast of Ramadan. Now that's just scratching the surface. But if you notice, there's lots of things the individual has to do to achieve Islamic faith's version of heaven. Then we can look at the Buddhist faith. The idea is to achieve a, an enlightened, elevated sense of being, and a Buddhist does that by following what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, which includes having the right viewpoint, the right aspiration, right speech, right behavior, right occupation, right effort, right mindfulness, right meditation. The individual has to get all those things right. The individual has to do. The Hindu faith. The individual must cultivate proper behavior by following the four yogas. The way of knowledge, the way of devotion, the way of action, the way of meditation. The individual must do. And then the faith that's closest to ours, 
It's called Judeo-Christian for a reason. The first five books of our Bible is the Jewish Torah. Okay, in, in Judaism, I think what happened was the Jews received the law from Moses and as humans were, they got laws more and more detailed. They broke down the big laws into smaller laws and all of a sudden you had this people that was focused on their collective salvation, not so much an individual thing, but their collective salvation and redemption through a Messiah who would come if they followed 600 and some laws. And suddenly this faith that should be alive and breathing and inspirational becomes a law of legalism. And when the Messiah came, they didn't know he was there. Christianity's different. In all of those faiths, there's a great importance placed on what the individual does to get to heaven. And we don't believe that, folks. Yes, we believe, but even our faith. John Wesley taught all the time, the Christian faith is actually a gift of grace for us to repent and believe Really, God is acting in us. Yes, we have to exercise a choice. There is something we must do. We must choose to exercise our free wills and say, yes, Jesus. But beyond that, we don't have this big checklist of things we have to do to be saved. And that's the difference. But here's the problem. We get to the point where we discover this truth. We know it to be truth. But sometimes we forget that that's the truth. The truth is staring us in the face and we focus on the wrong things. We focus on the literalism and the contradictions. And Jesus even spoke of this. He reminded the Pharisees that they had a problem because they didn't recognize him. He used their very own Torah, our Old Testament, against them when he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. The Mosaic Law. Your hopes are set on legalism. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Friends, the, the truth we have to remember is that our salvation has been bought and paid for us. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to earn it. But how we wield that truth matters. It matters a ton because the message that we need to share can be lost if it's delivered in arrogance, if it's delivered without love, Let's go back to the Hebrew scripture that I used earlier. I'm going to read it to you again. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So here's the question. This is the tough question. The tough question isn't really, is the Bible the only truth? The tough question is, who 
is supposed to be the sword wielder? Who is supposed to be that one who judges that Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 is talking about? And the answer is not us. The Bible is a beautiful book. It's the one book. But it is not ours to wield. Like a weapon. You know the jokes about the people who smack somebody upside the head so they're saved and then go find the next one to be saved. That is not how the book is to be used in our hands. To judge. To exclude. To harp. The best way for us to share the truth of this book is by letting people see Jesus in us. The best way to share the truth of this book is by serving and loving and forgiving. It's by trusting and letting people who aren't Christians see us actually obey what the book says. By not being legalistic, by not turning to one verse on one page and using it to point at someone and tell them how they're wrong. And that happens. It even happens sometimes right here when we disagree with each other. The first year I was at St. Paul, we had the back to school jubilee. We had a big, a lot of festivities going on in fellowship hall and the kids were getting their shoes and backpacks in another room. And one of the things we had set up in the fellowship hall was a little booth where kids could come and get a little star on their cheek or a Mickey Mouse or the boys all, that we had basketballs that had little swooshes off of them. And there was a little sign at the booth that said tattoos. So I came back to church the next week and someone came up to me rather angrily and somehow she missed that we were handing these Bibles out to the kids. But she didn't miss the sign that said tattoos. And she said, how could you have a sign up that said tattoos? That's not biblical. For the record, I love this person. She's not here today. But we talked about this, so I don't feel bad telling the story. Here's the point. The thing about tattoos, it was in the Bible because when the Levitical law was laid down, the pagan cultures that surrounded Israelis used to use tattoos and cutting of their skin to ward off the evil spirits who came for the spirits of people who died. Tattoos were related to a pagan ritual. That's what was wrong. And if all we can get out of the day we do something like have the Jubilee is that there was a sign that said tattoos are no-no, then we've missed the point of what this Bible is supposed to be used for and the truth that it's supposed to reveal to people who don't know Jesus. There's lots of people today who have tattoos. I've been thinking about getting one myself. I just might. And if the first thing, if the first thing we tell people about our Bible is that it says tattoos are bad, we're going to lose a lot of folks. So, the question today is, who is the sword wielder? Who is the judge? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit's the sword wielder. And the ones that he's cutting away on is us. 
so that we can go out in the world and share the truth in a better, non-judgmental way. The judge is Jesus. When you're in a service where we say the creed, it says, he ascendeth into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he, Jesus, will come to judge the quick and the dead. So friends, yep, the Bible's the only truth. But if we don't share that truth the right way, that truth is going to be lost to a whole bunch of the world. We need to share that truth with humility and respect. Not anything goes. I'm not talking about we should be pluralists. Whatever makes each person happy is fine. That's not what I mean. But we need to share this truth with gentleness and love, the way Jesus shared it with the woman at the well or the adulteress. Jesus demonstrated the truth of this book. He is the truth of this book. So let us share that truth by our words, but let us share it as well by our deeds.